0: Postscript Media. podcast for a changing planet.
1: But if you own something from
2: the beginning of a movement... Look at Blink-182. They were a joke when we were growing up, and now they're, like, really popular. What? Really? They are? Blink-182 is, uh, is, like, $700 a ticket. Like, their their concerts are sold out. And, like, growing up, they were, like, a cheesy... They were, like, Green Day's, like, the poor Green Day. You know what I mean?
0: This is Hot Buttons, a show about the future of fashion and culture on a changing planet. I'm Christina Binkley. I'm a contributing writer at Vogue Business and The Wall Street Journal. This week, we're checking back on the metaverse with Megan McDowell. She is Vogue Business's senior innovation editor. For many, the hype surrounding NFT's Web3 and the metaverse has given way to a feeling of a dying fad. Crypto is still firmly in its winter and stock price over at Meta continues to fall as Zuckerberg's big bet on the metaverse isn't yet bearing fruit. But the fashion industry shows no signs of pulling back. Partnerships with gaming platforms like Fortnite and Roblox, NFT drops at fashion weeks, and nearly every luxury brand has assigned an exec to lead their digital strategy. Does that mean fashion has just fallen harder for the metaverse, or is Web3 truly fit for a purpose with fashion? And for us here at Hot Buttons, does any of this add up to sustainability? We have lots of questions, and Megan
3: is here to help. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe, Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com.
0: Rachel Kibbe of Circular Services Group is in New York. Rachel, how's it going? It's
3: going great. How are you, Christina?
0: I'm good. I'm having winter and you're having summer.
2: Yeah, it's 75 degrees in New York.
0: We love to hear it. And I'm loving I'm loving
2: winter. Not from a climate perspective, but just from a personal happiness perspective, right this moment. That's yes. Very good. You
0: don't even have to go to Florida. And the CEO of Thrilling, Sheila Kim Parker, is coming to us as always from the basement in South Salem, New York. Hey, Sheila.
4: I think you just say from the basement and cut out South Salem, New York. It's just yeah.
0: Sheila
2: down under. Well,
0: yes, you're not exactly. even the only person in the basement here. I think our executive
4: producer, Scott, is in the basement too. So. Oh, really? All right, it's like being in the doghouse.
0: <laughs> I think that that's the coolest place to be when you're a podcaster. So,
4: mm-hmm. or the
2: garage. Mark Marin was in his garage for
0: years. <laughs> See, <laughs>
4: we're in good company.
0: So, Megan McDowell and I are actually colleagues at vogue business um and we have sparred over time over the Metaverse, which is why I am super excited to have her. She is Vogue Business's senior innovation editor, and I have actually had the 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 privilege of watching Megan wrap her arms around the Metaverse over the last few years when she started in this job. I guess it existed. I don't know. I'd never heard of it, and um, it's just something that she leapt into. I would argue that Megan is the senior and foremost journalist um, in fashion covering metaverse. I don't think I think everybody is in her dust um, as far as understanding what's going on with it and what the possible uses are. So, Megan, thank you for joining
1: us. That means a lot. Thank you for having me. Nice to hear that. I know that uh, you use the word spar, so at least, at least, yeah. other people in the dust of our sparring as well. I guess. <laughs> well, okay. Let's. I, I, I have to admit that I have.
0: I'm like the crotchety old. So what's the point? Person sometimes when things
1: the- <laughs> come which is actually great. It's great to ask those questions. You're
0: on the porch. That's why you're good at your job. I
2: don't get it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this
2: will never work.
0: Yeah. yeah it's like- <laughs> And then it does. Said like.
2: everyone about the internet.
0: <laughs> yeah. What's that internet thing? Yeah. Don't you have a telephone? World Wide Web. So I, I'm going to start this off. I, mean, I think we all have a ton of questions. And we do want to make sure that we keep an eye on the sustainability part of this. And actually, I think I read something recently, I think something that you wrote about, about using um, some metaverse technologies for actually designing clothes so you don't have to use samples or something. I don't know. I hope we can get to that. But when you talk with executives, Megan, in charge of digital at major brands, do you get a feeling that they're doing this because everybody has to have a metaverse strategy now? Or do you think they really have identified where the opportunities are and know what they're doing?
1: I don't think anyone knows what they're doing. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. And so, I mean, everyone's trying something creative and interesting and daring and risky. And we're all learning. I mean, you know, you talked about the internet. um, You know, what's e-commerce? What are iPhones? I mean, I loved my BlackBerry. (laughs) Me too. The keyboard. I mean, right? The keyboard to this day. To this day. And so, I mean, I think that shows that things can evolve. But to answer your question, I think everyone has to have a metaverse, quote-unquote metaverse or Web3 strategy at this point. And I think even if your strategy is it's not right for us now, um, if your strategy is we hate it and we refuse to do it, that's still a strategy. So I think that's what people are doing. I don't think anyone's figured it out, and I think there's no right or wrong answer. But I think completely ignoring it is probably not a great business strategy because you are going to be flat-footed. So even if that means something like an Aramaz or a Chanel, who you know are very analog, if they don't even copyright their trademarks and their IP in virtual and digital spaces, even if they're not doing something, someone else is going to do it and they're going to copy them. So I think like that alone, you know what I mean? So you got to think about it.
0: Years ago, somebody bought my domain name, christinabinkley.com. It took me like eight years. I mean, I know it was horrible. Uh, did you have to pay for it? Nasty people. Eventually, I did, but I, I nailed. I mean, they went from asking like tens of thousands to like two hundred bucks or something. <laughs> it was like, okay. wow. but it took years
1: because journalists are so, so notoriously rich, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly.
0: <laughs> if you if you you know, imagine Hermes's trademark. You know, actually, if there's any fashion brand whose metaverse I'd want to go into, it would be Hermes. They're so but how playful. would you envision it? It would be totally goofy and imaginative and sort of, they would do it really
4: well. I'd love to take a step back and just say, can we talk about what do we mean, Megan? And I feel like you're the perfect person to explain this. What do we mean when we say fashion in the metaverse or digital fashion? Like, can you explain what are the different manifestations? What, what, are, what, what are we talking about?
1: Yeah, great question. So I think The first one I'll start off with is digital fashion, because I think, A, it's easiest to explain, B, it's the most here and now, and C, it's the reason I became known for covering the space in the first place. So digital fashion, as I understand it or as I define it, is fashion that is digital. I mean, not to, you know, that actually is what it is. It's like, it's not made to be made physically. It can be interpreted physically, but it is any kind of fashion apparel item that is existing only in a digital sphere. Just like, you know, like right now, y'all can't see me because this is a podcast, but I'm wearing Zoom eyebrows. This is that's digital makeup. And so, like, this alone, I think, shows like we're not that far away from, I'm going to change my lipstick here. We're not that far away from like an obvious. Oh,
0: like, my God. My lipstick. Her lips went from a sort of a pale peach to a little more burnt umber. How does it stay with you? How are you doing that? I want your eyebrows. <laughs> Tell us. <laughs>
4: conversation quickly gets derailed.
1: (laughs) Yeah, sorry. It's dead silence.
2: Great podcast, guys. We're Um, watching her face transform before our eyes. We have all different types of makeup and...
1: So I think, okay, so like that or like Facetune, you know, like if you throw a filter on a pic on Instagram, the reason you do it is because it looks good. You get a dopamine hit from posting it. It feels amazing and it's relatively accessible. It costs money, but it's aesthetically pleasing, right? So... That's the same thing as digital fashion that was exciting to me is that, you know, like on Halloween, I was super busy. I was traveling. I didn't actually have time, but I was like, gosh, I, I need to buy a digital fashion outfit and post it on Instagram. And then I can participate in the social media moment. You know, I'm not going to be a worm, but maybe I'll be something else cool and I can get that dopamine hit. And so I think digital fashion to me is that. It can also be in video games, virtual worlds. It can be augmented reality, like Artifact and Nike made a a black hoodie that has a special symbol on it that if you scan it, it gives you wings. So if you look at it through your phone, you have these big, beautiful wings. So any sort of digital manifestation of something you wear is how I define digital fashion. My next definitions won't be quite as long. The metaverse, I think, is very hard to define. It is an amorphous concept. There's no agreed-upon definition. It mainly refers to sort of like any moment or space in which a digital element is something that we're interacting with. So it could be, like, I think Instagram is my metaverse. And I'm, I say that and people laugh, but I'm not even kidding because it's like, it's real. It creates real emotion, but it is digital. Like, this call is pre-metaverse in my mind because this is very real. What I say matters, but I can't touch you physically. And that can extend to a fully virtual world or to an augmented reality world. And then the third term that is being used a lot is Web3 which is refers to the next stage of the internet, and it's largely blockchain-based. And those words are kind of being used interchangeably, but if there's no blockchain element, it's typically not thought of as um, Web3.
0: Can you give us a concrete example of the difference between Metaverse and Web3? So, Metaverse is like what Mark Zuckerberg is doing with Meta. So, what's Web3?
1: So, there can be overlaps. For example, Roblox and Decentraland, which hosted Metaverse Fashion Week. Roblox is not Web3 because it's not decentralized and it's not blockchain-based. So it's a metaverse world, but the NFTs or the clothing it sells is not NFTs. It's digital fashion, but it's not NFTs. Decentraland, you can connect your wallet. The stuff you buy is blockchain-based, it's NFTs, and you can own virtual real estate. So that's kind of like They look very similar, but the infrastructure is different. So if I buy my outfit on Roblox,
0: anybody else can buy exactly the same thing. It's just a copy, and there's lots of it out there. If I buy my outfit on Decentraland, that particular one is solely mine, unless I sell it.
1: Yes, mainly. On Roblox, you can still have limited edition, so there's limiteds. Okay. But it's it's like a dollar. It's like if I hand you a dollar and you hand me a dollar, we basically have the exact same thing. That's kind of what you're saying. It's like Roblox. Whereas the NFT is like more like a, a piece of artwork or something where you can have things that look like it, but it's the unique one. And it can change in value, too, right? Mm-hmm. Depending on. Mm-hmm. Well, both of them can. Like um Roblox, they have secondary sales. And that's where you see a lot of these big valuations. Like, do you remember that moment when um, Gucci had a Dionysus bag and Alexis Ohanian tweeted that it it sold for more than the physical version? That's because secondary sales on Roblox can exist, and the community can price it at whatever they want. Um, But here's the difference: so Gucci just opened real estate on the Sandbox and they sold items there. They also sold items on Roblox. But when there's a secondary sale on Roblox, Gucci does not make any of that money. They don't make any percentage. On the Sandbox, they can program it into the smart contract that they make whatever percent of every secondary sale in perpetuity. Oh, wow. And I'm jumping the gun, but I know this is a sustainability podcast, right? So let me paint this picture. So Gucci Vault is Gucci's new experimental arm business unit. And under that, as you well know, they have vintage Gucci, pre-owned Gucci, They've collected from other independent brands, and they have their Metaverse and Web3 experiments. In the future, they could attach an NFT to a physical vintage item. Every time that item is sold and changes hands, Gucci can continue to make revenue because of the NFT.
0: Actually, did they know that? They launched Gucci Vault in Milan about a year ago, right? If I'm trying to remember, it was Milan Fashion Week. I was there. They did this big physical manifestation of it, in and we could all kind of walk through, and there were different rooms. And the one that, I, mean, I thought it was kind of weird that they were showing brands that aren't owned by Gucci, like emerging brands, but that's sort of to get the cool young kids in, I guess. And then they had rooms where they had literally pulled items out of their museum in Florence, the Gucci Museum. they I mean, they have incredible vaults of, um, particularly stuff that's from the early days of Gucci when they were making like absolutely every kind of product known to man, and I mean we're ta- we're going back to the '70s and '80s, and they were selling that stuff at Gucci Vault, and I was like, that's crazy to eliminate that kind of stuff. But if they can attach a value to that every time it sells, that's what a profit opportunity.
2: Let me ask you a quick question about that, about the mechanics of that, though. Have they totally figured that out? Because it seems like there's a bit of a software hardware. Thing that would have to be figured out because you can't necessarily stop someone s- from saying, "Okay, I'm the third owner of this Gucci bag. I'd like to pay you cash for this. How do you track that? How do you know that's the neck the fourth owner? Is there just legal implications around that that are still being figured out, or what does that mean?"
1: So I think what I think you're basically asking, and correct me if I'm wrong, is how do you attach the NFT to the physical item, and how do you prevent people from disaggregating it and selling the NFT separately? Okay. Yes. Thank you. You said it
2: much better than I did. Yes.
1: That's the question. Yeah, so you can add a QR code or an NFC chip or an RFID chip that connects the item to the NFT. And when you scan it with your wallet on your phone, it brings it up and it shows who owns it. The technology exists and it's getting better To that when you transfer ownership in the physical world, you can also transfer the NFT to the new owner. There are ways to do that to where if you scan it, you can claim it. I don't create this tech... The technology exists. People are working on it. I think that's a key example of where the infrastructure and the user experience is not ready for this mainstream hype. So they're working on it. There's a crypto investor who's an influencer named G-Money. And he recently came out with his own line called 9DCC. And he has a really interesting mechanic where you can scan the the shirt to, I can't remember exactly how it worked. There is a mechanic to where you can lock it or unlock it and release it. And there's a way to prevent people from stealing it. And there's a way to kind of create this in the tech. And I would imagine just the same way when you buy something from any website in the whole world, there's a record of you buying it and you trust that website and you trust that infrastructure that they're going to do the right thing. I would imagine that if a luxury brand offered this service and attached it to their resale, you would trust them just the same way you would trust like with your credit card. Like they would just... However they figured it
0: out would work. Gucci better get that right. Although I have to say, I don't know why you would want to disaggregate. Like, if I were buying a luxury good with cash— I want the NFT to come with it, right?
2: I mean, then you get into the whole of what if it's stolen and that, you know what I mean? Like then you, then my mind goes to perhaps uh, there will be something that's tracking it physically and then you get into privacy issues. But I think this is all where it gets really interesting too, because it's all sort of applied. It's the same technology we have today, essentially, but applied in different ways to meet a different universe's sort of needs.
1: And the tracking is only if you scan it, right? So if I'm wearing my shirt, no one can scan it unless I'm like, here's my tag. It's not like I walk around in a store necessarily and it's scanning me unless I go close to the reader.
4: You know what I mean? One of my curiosities about these new platforms is that, you know, clothes are obviously a form of self-expression. So there's something really individual about it, but there's also um, an element where you need an audience to express them, too, and I feel like some of the challenges you've had, we've seen with some of the newer platforms, is not enough people participating in them. Um, and so I'm curious, from your perspective, which of these um, platforms are are the most relevant, or compelling, or exciting to you? Which ones do you feel like are most promising? I mean, Roblox and Fortnite are obviously no-brainers—50 million, 80 million, you know, users. Those are always going to be really compelling for for brands to get involved with. But I'm curious for the newer platforms, which ones? Which ones are you most excited about?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, like, look at MySpace. Look at, do you remember um, Friendster? Yeah, oh my God. (laughs) olden days. (laughs) Right? And so I think, like, I can't see the future, and I'm just a humble journalist, but I look to the past as examples of, like, versions of MySpace and Friendster now exist, but then it was Facebook, and then now it's, like, something else. So I think, I personally feel it's, like, a little early to, like, point to one as this is going to be the one. I really love Roblox. I think it's super interesting and compelling. Do I personally spend time there my free time? Definitely not. But like, I think it looks so interesting.
2: I wonder, because everybody thinks, oh, what's the next MySpace? What's the ne- next TikTok? What's the next, you know, Facebook in the metaverse? Do you think it just will? I mean, Facebook arguably is not Landing that really well. But do you think it will be the TikTok or the Instagram rather than the Roblox or Roblox will combine with a platform that has network effect already? Because the network effect does seem to be that sticking point. And we have these social platforms that have tremendous network effect.
1: That's a great question. I think maybe it already exists yet and it's just going to modify. I think definitely that's Meta's strategy. I don't know that I would be, I'm not that bullish on their strategy, but I think that's a good point. And I also think a key point is like, maybe we're thinking with a very web one mindset. You know, we're all based in different cities, but we're all part of the same community and world. Maybe thinking about it in siloed platforms is not even the way to think about it. Like, maybe I have all my goods, like my closet, my physical closet, and I wear it in New York. I wear it in Florida. I wear it in London or whatever. Maybe it's the same mindset where it's like the community is what you're going toward, but we own all our own goods. And so— Maybe there doesn't need to be one dominant place. You know, kind of I think the direction the blockchain is taking it, where it's like you take your stuff to your different worlds. Um, and this idea of interoperability. I also want to offer, I know that there was a recent reporting that like the people in Decentraland were very, very low and everyone was kind of laughing. I wanna add that when you link your wallet to Decentraland or the sandbox or to any place that has has you log in with your wallet. That is not a transaction, so it's not recorded on the blockchain, so it's not public. So the only thing you can look at is transactions. So the numbers that were being measured in that article were the purchases, not the oh. people. Oh, that's big. That's a big point. So, And I'm surprised that hasn't been corrected. Because nobody understands what's going on. <laughs> well, that's it. Yeah, I think when you—you you know, back to your question about Roblox, the reason—it's like, if you build it, they will come. That's a whole classic tech problem, like— you need the network effect that you mentioned. Well, for me to go to Roblox, there needs to be people there building stuff for me, which I don't think they're doing. So I'm not going there, but for for a brand to spend time investing, they need to know there's gonna be a built-in audience. And so it's kind of like, which starts first, the chicken or the egg? I think that's why I never like to say that anyone's a flop because the fact that they're creating and experimenting, I think is a win, because that's really brave. So going back a little bit to like the fashion and sustainability
2: perspective, um, one of the examples I found most that seemed most near to us is the fact that in the future, or maybe not so distant future, you'll be able to try and close virtually which from returns, waste perspective, maybe even demand perspective sounds really interesting to me. And since we're shopping online anyway, why not be able to go into a world where you can go into a virtual store, try things on, see if it fits your body? How far away? I know we have, like, Snap has had sizing technology. I've seen little sort of bursts of real innovation around, you know, people basically uploading their own quote-unquote avatar, but their physical body with their physical measurements and being able to try things on. Um, in a virtual space. How far away do you think we're, we
1: are from that? It's really hard to do. I think a couple things here are really interesting. The ideal world in my mind would be if everyone had an avatar that was literally based on their measurements scanned in, and then you had everything, was all clothing was digitized. And so you could submit your avatar and then try it on with the digital clothing. And when I've seen that happen, and it is amazingly accurate. Like, If it's something too small, it like literally pulls and has like these lines, like it looks so real. But for that to happen, I think those are two big ifs, you know? So I think the AR try-on is not that great yet. And I don't think that's a realistic way of thinking about sustainability, like it's not. But I think what's more interesting and probably more accessible is the made-to-measure or the on-demand manufacturing or small batch manufacturing. I think that can be something that is more accessible and sustainable. And what's really interesting is this idea of, and Christine, I think you mentioned it in the beginning, of designing digitally first. So you can design something without the sampling, without shipping it across the ocean a gazillion times. You can fit unfit models using the process I just discussed. You can put it on your e-commerce site all digitally, and then only after someone buys it do you make it. I mean, that's like the dream. Um and that's kind of happening.
0: I don't know how costly that technology is and maybe you could enlighten us on it, but the cost and waste involved in sampling, especially now that you know brands designed in the US are being manufactured across two oceans and you know these samples are being going back and forth and back and forth. the carbon footprint is insane. Is do you think that the technology is going to become quickly affordable to do that?
1: Yes. I think um you know Tommy Hilfiger and PBH are already doing that. They're Offering that service to outside brands through Hatch and Stitch, um, which I think just merged. Um, so I think that is a for sure thing that's happening. All you have to do is train, upskill your um, teams on digital design processes, which that technology exists and it's just a matter of time and um, in, in doing it. So I think that's super like accessible. And I think, you know, getting back to the made-to-measure on demand thing. If you only sell what's already purchased, I think that already is a huge win for sustainability. And then if you're able to customize it a little bit with your initials or your color or like to mix and match patterns, you can see what it looks like realistically online using the exact same technology that was used to design the piece. So if I customize a sweater, you know I'm not going to get rid of it. Like, you know it's personal to me. So I think that's another element that luxury is looking at, which has been going on for a long time. And I'm surprised we haven't seen more of it.
4: Who are the brands that are embracing kind of all the different possibilities that digital fashion has to offer? Who, who are the ones to watch?
1: Um, I mentioned Gucci. They are very impressive. Their team is, I think they've created a culture of just being creative. And when you create that expectation of exploration, then it gives you that culture that people forgive you for trying new things they, they expect it of you. I think that's really interesting. I think, um, so this is a total pivot from Gucci, but I think Forever 21 and their Roblox strategy is really (laughs) intriguing. So I think what is interesting about them is that, you know, their Roblox experience is not getting the top marks among consumers. But what is getting top marks is their digital fashion. And it's not very expensive, but they're selling a lot of it. And that is literally exactly a representation of the physical world. Like, no one's like, oh, I just love spending time in Forever 21. It's just so sumptuous. Like, no one says that on God's earth. (laughs) It's not a lifestyle.
2: (laughs) Forever 21 is not a lifestyle of which we want to partake. But then
1: they're selling, like, a lot of digital products, like, a really high scale. And— like, this one beanie they started making, like, they sell, I mean, like, thousands of units a day. It costs 50 cents. They're on track to sell 1.5 million units this year. They don't even make them physically, and it has the word forever on it. And, like, they're really popular, and now I think they're considering making it physically, but it's like they're doing user testing on what's popular before they physically make stuff, which, you know, on on theme of this podcast is actually intriguing. Yeah, that actually is. I mean, I would love it, personally, if Forever 21 and
2: she and all of them just turned into a digital store instead of a physical store right if that's an option like you should yes
4: (laughs) mail in a letter we have a suggestion for you we
1: have why not stop (laughs) well h&m has experimented with digital first and digital only fashion and like i think that's coming back to what got me interested in the first place is the idea of like i can post a picture on instagram wearing a cool outfit and i think that's still i think really interesting
4: the other trend that I think is fascinating is kind of this democratization of designing. So there's a stat that we read 11.5 million creators on Roblox designed over 62 million virtual clothing this year. And I think Roblox just a few days ago put out a report on, um, on trends they're seeing in their fashion space. And they wrote that more than half of respondents consider a digital fashion designer career to be just as impressive or even more impressive in the role of a physical fashion designer. And I'm curious if you if if you think that this is
1: going to become a new way of discovering talent, a new career pathway, perhaps. Interesting. It's so interesting that they designate that because it's like digital art is art, physical art is art. Like, you're a designer, you're a creator. Like, I think in the future, it'll be more the medium unless like calling it digital or physical, you know? So yes, I think the answer is yes. Like, I mean, going back to the PVH, Tommy Hilfiger example, all their team knows how to design digitally now. So they are technically digital fashion designers. I do think it would be really compelling, and I think it's probably going to happen sooner than later, that a brand might hire like a permanent Roblox designer or a permanent sandbox designer. The problem is each platform has its own, like, norms and aesthetics and technologies. So that you mean you really are going to need specialists who really deeply understand that? Yeah, and the culture, understand the norms of the culture, too.
2: I mean, I think that makes sense, too, because when you think about fashion design overall, there's a lot of, or graphic design or what have you, you hire people for their specialization and knowledge of certain programs, Um, and increasingly so. Like, you can't get hired unless you know XYZ latest program for for design. So I saw last week there was kind of a meme-ish tweet. It was going viral about these like empty NFT metaverse conferences. Um, they were showing like these huge rooms oh. with yes. all these seats yes. and like three people in the audience. And it, I loved those the, pics. Like, there were there was something very like amazing about them. I don't know. It just felt like art in and of itself, because as we know, last year, that was not the case. You couldn't even get into these conferences. Do you think like Zuckerberg's kind of avatar metaverse flop, I think we can call it that, right now, who knows what it'll turn into, but it's been a flop lately. Do you think it's had a negative knock-on effect on the overall sort of optimism around the industry or movement? First of all, on the
1: conference's point, I think You know, everyone's at the parties, everyone's at the private dinners, the lunches, the breakfasts. Like we held an event at NFT NYC and like the party was hopping. Like people were really into it. So I think we we look at it as a congregation moment for this community that never sees itself in in person, rather than like, let's go sit and listen to a talk. A PowerPoint that's the opposite of web three, right. Second question is, can business conferences happen, like in the metaverse, and virtually 100% we've done two of them, and they are setting records for social media mentions and enthusiasms from our members. We had a one-day record of memberships on our last metaverse atelier that we hosted. Third question, um, has Zuckerberg poured cold water on the metaverse concept? 10 out of 10, <laughs> I would agree. Like, <laughs> like, I'm yes. sorry.
2: So I— <laughs> Sorry about what? I'm sorry that he's poured cold water. I I mean, I think that, like, it's just anything that has, like, a lot of momentum. One big bad thing happens, and then everybody says it's over. And we know that's, like, never generally completely true.
0: Oh, but, Rachel, that's okay, because it also causes people to reset and stop running like lemons lemmings together, right? So we had, like, huge enthusiasm. Oh, it sucks. It's not going to work. And then people start thinking about what's not working right? And if you get to root against Mark Zuckerberg, it's just sort of fun for a while too.
3: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com.
0: I'm going to throw this in at some numbers here. Boston Consulting Group forecasts the following markets for the digital metaverse fashion. $6 billion would come from video game skins that are linked with real-world brands. $6 billion would come from digital fashion, including avatars and avatar wearables, augmented reality overlays, and 3D try-ons. This is the area most often addressed by startups, as we've talked about. $13 billion, so as much as those other ones together, would come from NFT drops launched by fashion brands, mainly around luxury and premium sportswear. Now, 1000000000s these billions of dollars, it sounds like a lot of money, but I mean, we're not really, you know, in terms of the overall size of the fashion industry, it's not really that much money at this point. But I'm just curious, do you think, Megan, that we should be paying any attention to the sort of potential size of these markets when it's so early? We've got all these people throwing out numbers like this to guide us on where we should invest. Is this all BS? I mean, do you think there's, does anybody have enough of a crystal ball to have any sense of the potential economic magnitude?
1: You know, I think whenever I see, I'm I'm a words person, so whenever I see big numbers like that, it just kind of blurs together. And I'm like, oh, that sounds like a lot. But then you see it compared to like the NFL, what they bring in, and then it's like nothing. And so it's like, it's all kind of relative. I think that that study you mentioned was I think that was a while ago. Um, It was during peak hype. That's interesting. Also, I don't think anyone has a crystal ball on like exact numbers or how it's going to manifest or the, you know, the user experience. I think directionally it's going toward digital goods, digital spaces are going to become more and more important to our daily lives. I think that is for sure. Like, I don't think that's, it's already happening. I think that's, You can bank on that. I think, depending on the industry, I think the early adopters are the ones most likely to be prepared. Even if they're making mistakes now, this is the dress rehearsal moment. And so, if if they're waiting and seeing, they're going to be copying someone else. Or they're going to be, I mean... I mean, I mean, all you have to do is, like, look at newspapers and magazines who posted a PDF of their publication on the Internet. Like, that was Web 1 trying to be Web 2, and, and look what happened there. Let's talk about power, energy,
0: electricity, sustainability, greenness. Like, do we really want Forever 21 to make only digital clothes? Is that cleaner than making— physical clothes.
1: You know, as you know, I'm not a sustainability expert, but I think the way they're doing it now, it is especially if people are using that, if they're using their allowances on Roblox or Instagram or wherever to wear digital clothing and to express themselves and to have status instead of buying it at Forever 21, that seems to me pretty straightforward. Obviously, you need computing power and you need servers, but to replicate a beanie, you don't need anything other than, I guess, I mean, I'm not a no, I don't code, but like it's like you don't have to create more materials. It just You just make another beanie. I agree with that. I think it just depends on,
4: I think the inherent assumption is that people will replace f- physical purchases with digital purchases, and I think that's a big if.
2: I guess this is non Metaverse, but Metaverse. How do you personally ups- withstand, as a journalist, the ups and downs of covering this kind of nascent space?
1: To me, any news is news as a journalist, and so My big thing is I'm trying to scale myself and scale my coverage and maintain my relationships and stay fresh on what's happening. But I'm basically always overwhelmed. But, like, ups and downs are interesting to me, like, because it's all new.
0: Megan has embraced this from the beginning and learned about it. We can tell that she knows it at a level of detail, probably getting along to some engineers. And she has been invited onto a number of Boards, one big one at Connie. I mean, she's like, we're going to hear a lot more about Megan in this space because she knows it and she embraced it early and isn't isn't frightened of it.
4: Megan, uh, fire your publicist and agent. You have a new one. Yeah. <laughs> um, Nobody's ever accused me of being good at that, but she's okay. like, great. I don't have one. You're hired. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, other than having just become your publicist, Megan, I want to say thank you.
1: Thank you so much. That's a huge honor. I appreciate that.
0: <laughs> it's it's an honor to have you on. Thank you so much. <laughs> That's all for the show. Please support us by following us on Twitter at hotbuttonspod and now on Instagram at hotbuttons.pod or send a link to friends or colleagues and go to Apple or Spotify and give us a rating. We're also streaming on Amazon Music. We really appreciate your support. If you want to email us with story ideas, send a note to hotbuttons at postscriptaudio.com or leave us a voicemail at our new call-in line, 508-622-5361. You may hear your own voice on our pod. We love to do that. Hot Buttons is hosted by me, Christina Binkley, Shola Kim Parker, and Rachel Kibbe. The show is produced by PostScript Media. Our senior editor is Ann Bailey. Our engineers are Greg Vilfrank and Sean Marquand. Cecily Mesa martinez is our managing producer. Stephen Lacey, Scott Clavenna, and Rachel Kibbe are our executive producers. PostScript Media makes podcasts at the intersection of climate with culture, politics, business, and Tech. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. Thanks for joining us. We will catch up with you next week. She's a big dog in this space. And I mean, and the reason is that she, absolutely.
1: No, no, I'm thin. I'm very (laughs) thin. She's a tiny, (laughs) big dog.
4: (laughs) Your Zoom box makes you look very skinny. Don't worry. (laughs)